all of us have, you know, books of the Bible that we really like and we really know. And I have mine. My favorite book probably, uh, although Hebrews is, is getting there from our study, but my favorite book of the Bible is the book of Romans. And, and if you wanted to get me started, I could sit down and give you a verse-by-verse verse study with hardly any notes and we could go to town. There's other um, books of the Bible that, that while I know them and have read them, maybe I haven't preached on them a lot. Uh, I don't preach much on uh, Habakkuk. I don't preach much on, you know, uh, uh, Zephaniah. And there's some great things in those as well. The book of James is one of those books of the Bible that we tend to know a verse or two out of it, but we never really put it all together. And so a uh, couple Wednesday nights ago we started a series and we've gone through it. Someone had mentioned that the book of James is the Proverbs of the New Testament. It, is, it, it, it may not be at least in first glance. It may not be some deeply theological book that, like say, Hebrews is. But the more I've studied it, the more I realize the depth that James had. James was the pastor of the church of Jerusalem. He was also Jesus' half-brother, if you will. He was Mary and Joseph's son. And so uh, during the life of Jesus... James really didn't follow Jesus. There was some conflict, and why not? I mean, if, if, if my brother walked on water and healed the sick and never did anything wrong and turned water into wine, I'm pretty confident there was a little bit of civil and bribery going on there. But, uh, but later on, the Bible indicates that when, when Jesus was resurrected from the tomb, that he showed himself to the disciples, but the Bible specifically mentions that he showed himself to his brothers and his sisters. And that was something you just couldn't argue with. To see the one that you had been there on Golgotha's hill, watch them drive those nails in his hand, watch the spear pierce his side, know he was in a tomb and now he's alive. It's just kind of hard to, 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 to walk away from that kind of an experience. You find in the upper room in Acts chapter 2 that James and, and, his, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, it indicates that, that uh, uh, Joseph probably had passed on uh, by the time that Jesus uh, had, had resurrected and ascended. But in the book of, of Acts, James receives the Holy Ghost. James is baptized. And then that new church that is birthed from that upper room, James is the driving force to those Jews in Jerusalem and he's teaching them. In each of these epistles that we find in the Bible, each of these epistles are written to a specific group of people. Uh, this is written to the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. Uh, Romans was written to those in Rome. Uh, uh, Ephesus is the same thing, or, or the Corinthians. It's written to the church in Corinth. Uh, and so all of them are written for a purpose. And all of them, while they go back to a specific moment in time and a specific moment in history, the truth is all of us, deal with these things that these churches dealt with, uh, whether it's the church of Rome or, or, or the church of Jerusalem there, we all can find something in those that, that re reach us today. James sat down. We know that all of the scripture is breathed on. It's ordained by God. And so James sits down and he begins to write a letter to the, to the church there in Jerusalem. And as he's writing, God impresses on him and God touches him. And what he's doing is he's writing and he's telling people, this is how you can know you're a mature saint of God. This is how you can know if you've grown up. We talk about being born again, new babes in Christ, a new convert. 
But can I just tell you that, that the, the whole point is you don't stay a babe in Christ. You don't stay a new convert. I need mature believers. I need people who, who can walk with God even if church has to get canceled for snow and you won't backslide because you didn't hear a sermon that Sunday. I need people who, if the church has some rocky moments, if, if God forbid, and I have no intention of this, but I've been around the block long enough, um, if you'd like to, we can all silence our phones, including mine. There we go. Uh, if, if a church goes through a, a leadership crisis, a mature saint can stand. A mature saint can go through the ups and the downs, but a, a new babe in Christ can get lost by the wayside. And we need mature Christians. And so in James chapter 1, we're introduced to two things. We're introduced to trials and we're introduced to temptations. I know I've said this several times, but just one more time and we'll get to it. Uh, a, a trial can come from the Lord. It's to test us. It's to help us grow. It's to give us some resistance so that we can be strong. A temptation comes from the devil. Trials make us stronger. Temptation is there to make us fall. Trials are good, temptation is not. We talked about that a, a mature saint, a mature Christian is patient when the trials come. They're willing to let God walk them through it, and, and he can. But in James chapter 2, I want to talk to you about a Christian's faith. Christian's faith. And again, uh, as I've said through, through this study, I, I use... Um, some of the writings of Warren Wiersbe, his commentary called the, the Bible, um, <coughs> excuse me, the Bible Exposition Commentary, and so I'll use some of that. So if you hear some alliteration, uh, that 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 comes from him, and, and you'll get there. But um, have you ever heard someone that talks a lot, but they've never really done it? You ever had anybody in your life like that? They can tell you how to fix your car. They can tell you all the specs and what your calipers and your brakes ought to be. And then when you ask them, have you ever changed the brakes on your car? You kind of get this feeling they've never done it. Someone that can talk the talk but not walk the walk. Immature people are really good at talking about what they believe, but they never get to it. They never can, can, can practice, if you will, what they preach. And I want to tell you today that hearing the Word of God and talking about the Word of God is never a substitute for following and obeying the Word of God. And that's where faith comes in. And so James, uh, he, wants, he wants to make sure that those that he's leading, he wants to make sure that they are mature. And so he said, I want to see if you can do what God's Word says. And so in the book of James, uh, if you will, he... And I don't know that he, if he did this, he at least alludes to it. But in my mind, I like to think he actually did this. Have you ever, uh, have you seen that Facebook story and, and news story that goes around where a, a preacher of a large church dressed up like a homeless man and sat at the front of his church on a Sunday morning just to see if anybody would talk to him. And he was right there at the front door. And he had people telling him he had to move. And the, I think the cops were called. And nobody invited him in and, and, and all of that. And so uh, church went on and, and the pastor's not on the platform. And finally when it came time for the pastor to preach, he walks in as that homeless man and he began to preach to him. And uh, kind of hit him right there because they weren't really practicing that. James did the same thing. James brings or allows two visitors to come to a church service, a rich man and a poor man. 
And James, in my imagination, sits back and watches how they act and how they were treated and how they behave. And, and James understood this. And I want you to listen very close, closely. James understood that you cannot, and, and I would dare say you dare not, separate human relationships from divine fellowships. The way we treat each other and the way we treat other people is absolutely important to how we treat God and God treats us. The Bible says in 1 John, says if a man says I love God but I hate my brother, then he is a liar. For if you don't love your brother whom you have seen, how in the world are you going to love God whom you have not seen? And so in this Bible study today, you're going to find a lot of verses that you may not have realized connected. But they do. James gives us four basic, or, or, or basic, there's four doctrines, if you will, if I could use that word, four basic Christian doctrines that James wanted to connect those doctrines with how we treat others. So watch this. The first one, and, and, and if you have your Bibles now, I'll let you turn there. The first one comes in James uh, chapter 2, and we're going to start off in those first four verses. This is the first doctrine that James wanted to get to connected and see how, it, how it, it, it goes. So the first one is the deity of Christ. The deity of Christ. Uh, when we examine the deity of Christ, we also examine our relationships with others. Let me read to you. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly... And a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and you say, here, sit here in a good place. While you say to the poor man, you stand over here or you sit at my feet. And that's a derogatory term. Have you not yet made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Those are those two people that James sent into church. A rich man and a poor man and he wanted to watch. If you will, the literal translation of that first verse, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, it literally means don't hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ by showing favoritism. That's the literal translation of that. It is because especially in the Jewish uh, culture, and James fought with this on a daily basis, in the Jewish culture, uh, people coveted to be recognized. They wanted to be seen. They wanted to be honored. And they would, they would vie with each other for praise. Do you remember the sons of Zebedee? Do you remember James and John, not this James, but the other James, when, when their mom came to Jesus and said, which of my sons can sit at your right hand? Which of my sons can be the best, the favorite? They did this, and Jesus hated favoritism. And, and I'll go on record because it all applies. Jesus hates racism. Jesus hates classes. Jesus hates social distinction. In fact, let me show you this. In, Jesus said in Luke chapter 14, there was a parable. He said, he told the parable to those who were invited because he noticed how when they chose the places of honor. In, in that day and age, uh, whoever was closest to the host or whoever was sitting closest to the, the guest of honor, they were more important. And so if, if today was in that Jewish time, Brother Steve, you would have a place of, of honor. Brother Harvey, you'd have a place of honor because you're up front. 
But those of you in the back, sorry, Brother Ron, Brother Whitman, Brother Bob, y'all would have been kind of back there. And, and even if you wanted to come up front, we wouldn't have let you. That's how church services had, had, had gone. The rich sat in the front, the poor sat in the back. And Jesus told them when he saw this happening, Jesus said, Luke chapter 14, verse 8, when you're invited to someone to a wedding feast, don't go sit at the place of honor because you might get there and someone more distinguished than you is invited and then he that's invited you is going to have to make a scene and say, I'm sorry, Brother Steve, you, I got someone else that need, need you to back up. He says, no, why don't you just start by sitting in the back? And if they want to invite you up, let them invite you up. And, the, and he goes on to say, for whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Jesus kept this up. Jesus had a problem with the Pharisees, and the Pharisees had a problem with what we're dealing with. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 23, verse 1, he said, he said I want you to, to, to look at the scribes and the Pharisees that sit at Moses' seat. And I want you to observe what they tell you, but watch that they tell you what to do, but they don't do it themselves. They preach, but they do not practice. He said, they love for their deeds to be seen by others. They make their phylacteries long, broad, and their fringes long. That's the, the fringes, the prayer. They, they wanted to look like they prayed all the time, and they did all of this. They love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues. And they love when you find them in the marketplace to call them rabbi uh, and all of that. But he said, don't, don't, don't fall for that. The greatest among you shall be your servant. And again, here it is, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And James's church in Jerusalem was not the only church that was like that. It happens in your work, it happens at school, it happens on the playground, and unfortunately sometimes it happens in the church, and that is we've got people whose sole desire, none of you of course, their sole desire is, I want to keep climbing up so I can get recognized. I, I want to be there, and, and, and sometimes, and I'm very thankful this church is not like this, uh, at least on a, on a whole. I'm sure that, that there's ups and downs, but you know what? I've been to churches where new people come, and it's hard for them to get connected, and, and there's cliques, and, and in, in Jerusalem church and other places, people would use their, their office or their ministry to get favors and show their own importance, and later on you will find in James chapter 3 that there were those that were going to church just simply so that they could get a spiritual office. I'm going to go to church just so I can be a preacher or just so I can uh, have this. But can I tell you that Jesus is not a respecter of the persons. In fact, even Jesus' own enemies admitted this. There was a time that the Pharisees came to Jesus in Matthew chapter 22 and they wanted to, to try to entangle Jesus in his own words. But by their own words they said, Teacher, we know you're not true, I'm sorry, we know that you are true and you teach the way of God truthfully and you do not care about anyone's opinion and you're not swayed by appearances. Now they were meaning that in a bad way, but they were absolutely true. Jesus could go to the Pharisee or he could go to Zacchaeus the publican. Jesus didn't care. Our Lord was not impressed with the outward appearance. He looks on the heart. Your money that you had in the bank didn't impress him. Your social status didn't impress him. In fact, it was that poor widow woman at the back of the church that gave those two little mites in the offering that got the Lord's attention more than that entire parade of the rich man that cast many, many uh, uh, riches there in the box. I love the fact when I look at the disciples, 
the Lord looked at, at rough fishermen like Peter and he saw a rock. He looks at Matthew, the publican, the tax collector, a lowly man, a, a man that cheated and probably lied. And instead, he saw a faithful disciple who one day would write one of the gospels that we follow. It was the disciples that were absolutely amazed and dumbstruck that God would ever sit on the, on the edge of a, of a well and talk to a woman of Samaria. I mean, it messed them all up. But Jesus saw that woman on the, that, that, that had had five or, or four husbands or five husbands and the one she was with wasn't her husband. However, that all played out. Jesus didn't see a broken woman. Jesus saw someone that was about to walk back into a city and bring the entire city out to hear the word of God. If we're not careful, you and I, we get to where we judge people because of their past and not because of their future in Christ Jesus. We look and we say, well, I don't know if there'll ever be anything. I'm, I'm not for sure that will happen. And you say, oh, it can never happen here. Well, it happened in Jerusalem. You know when God knocked Saul off of his horse? You know, the one that was killing the Christians and, and bringing them into jail? God knocked Saul off of his horse. Saul was blinded. He comes in and he receives the Holy Ghost. He's baptized. And Jerusalem, people in Jerusalem, and I do understand some of this because they had Probably some of them had had their loved ones taken by Saul, but they wouldn't accept him. In fact, it was not until Barnabas, who believed, had to break down those walls and say, he's okay because the future with God is greater than the past of man. Don't, don't, don't judge by their past, and for sure don't judge by their appearances. The Bible says that the Lord looks on the inward parts of the, of the, the heart. Now listen to me, Jesus was a friend of sinners. He didn't approve of their sin. And I, I, I watched it, I wrote this down, someone wrote it this way. It was not compromise, but it was compassion that allowed the Lord to meet the sinner and to welcome them. And when they would trust him in faith, he could forgive their sin. It wasn't compromise, it was compassion. Jesus was despised and rejected. If you were to find Jesus back there in that day, there's nothing about Jesus' stature or physical nature that would cause you to want to follow after him. He wasn't going to win any beauty contests. Isaiah chapter 53 prophesies that he was the poor man, rejected by his own nation. He didn't have a home. He even said the foxes and the birds have homes. I don't. He... He grew up in a despised city of Nazareth. He knew what poverty was. There was nothing physically, there was nothing materially about him that would have tracked you and I, but yet he's the very glory of God. When that man would walk down the street, it wasn't what he looked like that mattered. It was the fact that he was the expressed image of God Almighty. In the Old Testament, God's glory first dwelled in the tabernacle. Later it dwelled in the temple. And then when Jesus is on earth, God's glory resides in him. And now today, the glory of God resides on you as a believer in the church in a collective understanding. But those religious experts, those Pharisees and Sadducees, they looked at Jesus and they rejected him because he didn't match up to the standard they thought a king should be. Wrong city, didn't graduate from school. No uh, approval of the people in power. No wealth. Look at who follows them. They're a, a mob, a rabble. It, it, it's, it's fishermen and publicans and sinners and, and women. And, and oh my goodness, I can't believe it. But he's God incarnate. 
And while there'll never be another God incarnate, I wonder if we ever make those same mistakes. Someone walks into our church and we judge them on what we see. Their dress, the color of their skin, their fashion, other things that carry far more weight than the fact that God can save them or has saved them and the fruits of the Spirit that they can bear. And, and, and again, not, I hope I never do this, and I, and, and I hope you never do this, but the, book, or the church in Jerusalem did, and that's why we have the book of James. They were catering to the rich because the rich could give more in church. But let's not do much for the poor that can't give. But you see, here it is. Let me tell you how you can, uh, one person wrote it this way, this is how you practice the deity of Christ in our human relationships. It is to see everyone through the eyes of Christ. When a sinner walks through these doors, I receive them because I know Christ died for them. If someone saved walks through these doors regardless of who they are, then here's what I understand. I'm accepting them because Christ lives in them. And so it is that Christ shows us how we are to respond to others. That's one way. You look at the, just the deity of Christ. And you realize that we ought to love each one. The second thing that we ought to, to, that ought to help shape and mold us with our relationships is the grace of God. Watch what James says in verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he's promised to those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones the ones that oppress you and drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? And, and just to, to, to go quickly through this, the simplest thing there is that it's God chose them. The grace of God. If you and I could ever get the attention of God by what we've done, then we wouldn't need grace. I'd just tell you to be better, act better, quit sinning. You can get the, the, the attention of God. But instead, grace tells me that God so loved the world that while we were yet sinners, he still died for you and I. I can't deserve it. I can't earn it. God loves me. And if God loves anyone that walks through these doors, then who am I to say I don't? In fact, watch this. God ignores national differences. When, when in, in Acts chapter uh, 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 10, you, you have that story of Cornelius, that, that centurion of the Italian band, and he receives the Holy Ghost. And it messes up those Jewish believers so bad that God would ever choose to pour out his spirit on a Gentile. In fact, the first church conference, you find it in Acts chapter 15, the first church conference was Peter and, 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 and Paul arguing. And Peter was trying to tell Paul that in order for a Gentile to be saved, they had to become a Jew. So not only was that, yes, they needed the Holy Ghost. Yes, they need to be baptized. Yes, they need to repent of their sins. But they also, if they're a man, need to be circumcised. If they're a woman, they need to do this and, and all of that. And God very quickly and very loudly tells them in that conference, Acts chapter 15, no. Because it's not about nationalities. There's no difference. In fact, what, is Roman, what does the book of Romans teach us? There's no difference between the Jew and the Gentile. The Jew and the Greek. And God also, not only does he say there's no difference in the nationalities. God says there's no difference in the social aspects. Masters and slaves, God called them both. Rich and poor, God called them 
both. And so it is that the doctrine of God's grace, and let me read this quote from Warren Wiersbe. It says, the doctrine of God's grace, if we really believe it, forces us to relate to people on the basis of God's plan and not on the basis of human merit and social status. Ephesians tells us that when Jesus died, he broke down that partition between the Jew and the Gentile. When Jesus died, he broke down the walls in the rich and the poor and the young and the old and the educated and the uneducated. And a church that builds back those walls is a church that walks outside the grace of God. The third thing that we use to, to help lead us in our relationships with others is the word of God. Read with me in Rome, and sorry in James chapter eight. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and fails in one part becomes guilty of all the law. For he who said, "Do not commit adultery," and also says, "Do not murder." If you do not or if you do not commit adultery but you murder you've become a transgressor of the law. DL Moody is a, 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 a little bit before my time but he was a, a, a great theologian, a great preacher and he made this statement and I've, I underlined it in my notes but he said every Bible ought to be bound in shoe leather. What he meant was and you've heard it many times the only Bible people will ever see is you. What what D.L. Moody was saying is, yes, the Word of God is there, but we ought to be practicing what the Word of God says. And we know, and there, I mean, at least I know, and I assume you do, I know this Word of God is absolutely divinely inspired. There's no other book like it. No other book that's as truthful and and has has never failed, and so I'm going to follow it with everything I can. And so James, right here, he reaches back into the Old Testament. And and this is what he writes. He writes of of Leviticus chapter 19 verse 18. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. How many of you remember the story of the Good Samaritan? Man, you know, had had fallen on the wayside. Thieves had beat him up. And a priest comes by and won't even look at him. And a Levite comes by and looks at him. And then finally a Samaritan comes and picks him up and takes him. Jesus was telling us that because he was telling us people need our help. But, but there were those, and, and I can't remember, it's been in a sermon just recently, I made mention of this, and for the life of me, I can't remember which sermon it was, but I made mention that, that when after he gave that parable, somebody was ready for the exemption, was ready for the exception. You know, he was ready to say, so he asked the Lord, well, Lord, who is my neighbor? Wanting the Lord to tell him that, well, these are your neighbors, but this person over here, you don't have to worry about them. Can I tell you today that when we read the word of God and especially that story, it ought not be who is my neighbor. It ought to be to whom can I be a neighbor. It has nothing to do with the person that lives right next door to you, although you should be helping them. It has to do with how can I help. And for some reason, James, and this is about the only time I see this, James calls that commandment, love your neighbor as yourself, he calls it the royal law. Now, I would say it's the royal law because it was given by the king, by God. We understand that. But, but this is the 
second reason, and perhaps the one that applies to you and I more, the love thy neighbor law is a royal law because that law rules and governs all of the other laws. Remember when, when somebody asked the Lord, God, what is the greatest commandment? Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, thy soul, thy mind, and thy strength, and thy neighbor as thyself, and on those two hinge all the other commandments. And so it is that the law, love thy neighbor as thyself, the love is the fulfilling of that law. I know this sounds really simple, but if everybody followed that one law, love thy neighbor as thyself, we wouldn't have need of police officers, we wouldn't have need of courts, we wouldn't have need of, of complex laws, but it's there. In fact, I, I challenge you, and I'm not going to do it now. You're smart enough to, to do it at home. Go take every one of the Ten Commandments, and almost every one of them, you will find a way that if you break that Ten Commandment, you will be breaking or hurting your neighbor. Even go so far, someone wrote that, that even, even the idolatry, it, you find one thing about idolatry is that it always hindered or it always hinged on getting a lot of money from people. Got to have some way to pay for them idols, but you got to start looking at that. <clears throat> and you can't, you can't keep all the rest of the law, but not the love your neighbor as yourself. Because the Bible says, if you break just one of those commandments, you've not kept the law. And I think it would just, I, I think I need to just remind you today that Christian love does not mean you necessarily have to like them. All right? I don't necessarily like my enemies. I don't like the ones that smash the mailboxes, and I don't like the ones that do bad things. I don't have to agree with them on everything to love them. I don't have to like what they say. I don't have to like what they do. I don't have to hang with them and take them to lunch. In fact, let me tell you this way, Christian love, and this is another uh, Warren Wearsby sentence, Christian love means treating others the way God has treated me. God didn't like my sin, but he loved me. God didn't want to let me live in sin, and he loved me. In fact, I, I've used this many times, love is not an emotion, it has to be the act of a will. And so if you will, the Bible, what is one of the first fruits of the Spirit? Love. You can't really love unless you've got God inside you. Why? Because God is love. And, and Christian love doesn't leave a person the same way it finds them. So all of this mumbo-jumbo political correctness that is getting thrown out in this day and age where, where we have to love everybody and we can't judge and, and, and you can't, you know, anyone can do whatever they want to do and throw it in your face. Can I tell you that is absolutely wrong and let me show it to you. God loved me so much that he didn't want me to stay where I was. You love your children so much you don't want them to stay where they are. You don't want them to stay babies. I mean, I know sometimes you say you do, but, but really you don't. Sister Ashley, it might be cute now, but in 16 years, if you're still feeding her a bottle, it won't be cute anymore. And so love helps the poor man do better. Love helps the rich man do better. Love helps the sinner be saved. Love builds up. Love changes. And the, la the third, fourth thing, or the, yeah, the fourth thing that helps us 
couch our relationships with others is the judgment of God. Watch what James chapter 2 says. Or James chapter 2 verse 12. So speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. In, in every Christian uh, church, and I, I, I'm, I'm using that for organizations, if you will, the Baptist church, the Lutheran church, the, the, uh, the Catholic church, the, the, even the non-denominational churches, the Pentecostal churches, every one of them that I can find has a statement, usually on their website, and it's kind of like a statement of what they believe. Almost all of them will say, God is coming again and God is going to judge the world. All of them say that. Ours included. And so we don't deny that there's a final judgment. So let me tell you, there's three things that you're going to be judged on. You're going to be judged on the words that you say. Can I take you back to, to uh, James chapter 2 verse 3? And uh, James chapter 2 verse 3, This remember it says, In your assembly a man with gold ring, you know, rich man and a poor man came. And you had respect to him that weareth the gay clothing, and said unto him, gay meaning happy, sit thou at the good place, and you said to the poor, stand here. So, so you, you have what they said to others. You're going to be judged what you say. Matthew chapter 12, in fact, next, hopefully, well not next week, that's youth week, and then the next week will be the business meeting. So give me three weeks, and I'll be ready. We'll get into James chapter 3. And we're going to talk about the tongue being, you know, needing to be bridled and all of that. Jesus said that you will be judged for every careless word you say. I got a whole lot to say about that when I come back because nowadays in the days of social media and, 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 and posting and all of that, you will be judged for every careless word you say. You say, that didn't matter. I, I was just kind of kidding. I hate to bust your bubble, but I, I, I think sometimes what we kid, God says those are careless words. And the reason is, is because what does the Bible say? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. God connects what we say to what's in our heart. Meaning you can't really have careless words. What you're saying shows up in your heart. And what did, what did we just spend the first part of this talking about? God judges first the inward part, then he'll take care of the outward. And so it is that, that our words will be judged. And we have a lot more to say when we get to James chapter 3. So what you say about others, what you say to others, what you post on Facebook about others, see where I'm going? All of that. The second thing is our deeds will be judged. What you do will be judged. That's easy. When we get to heaven, God's going to look at us. And if you have unrepentant, unclean sin, those deeds, those actions will damn you to hell. Somebody said it this way, you can't sin lightly and serve faithfully. It's pretty deep. And then the last thing is our attitudes will be judged. Remember, God judges the inside in, in, this, in this, this rich man, poor man that came into the church, James contrasted two attitudes. He said, to some you showed mercy, and to others you didn't show mercy. 
Now here in, in James it says that for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. And so we understand that if we've been merciful to others, then God will show mercy to us. However, don't take that truth. That's a true statement. Let me say that again. This is a true statement. If you show mercy to others, God will show mercy to you. But let me tell you something. This is, this, we got to be careful you don't turn it away or, or turn it and twist it into a lie. It doesn't mean you earn mercy. We don't believe in karma. We don't believe in, 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 you know, doing enough good things and God will love you. It's not that you showed mercy, that you get mercy. But what it means is that, that our, our attitudes of mercy allow us. In, well, well let, let, me, let me get there. Let me, let me say this for a moment. Uh, mercy doesn't mean that we can't judge others. Mercy doesn't mean we're soft on sin. And I want you to understand that. For, for a church to quit preaching about sin and for a church and a pastor to stop saying what's right and wrong, that doesn't mean that's a merciful pastor. That's a stupid pastor that's going to lead an entire church into hell. Parents, just to be soft on sin and to say, oh, it's okay, that is not being a merciful parent. That's being a stupid parent. And you're going to lose your kids. Don't, don't, uh, someone, someone said, and it's an illustration I wrote, I don't know who it was, someone mentioned, he said, I don't condemn anyone, and so thus God won't condemn me. That's not true. Listen to this, mercy and justice go hand in hand. They don't compete with each other. When, whenever someone is repentant, whenever ever someone has faith, then God can show them mercy. But whenever there's rebellion, unbelief, stiff-neckedness, I don't have to bend, I don't have to repent, then in that case, God cannot show mercy. God has to show judgment. God has to show justice. And so it is that we get. Um, just real quick, the Bible talks, that, that verse we just read uh, in, in, that, in the, that part of, of James, it talks about the law of liberty. And that is because a, a, as, a, as a child, we have a whole lot of rules on our children. They can't touch this. They can't put this in the mouth. They can't do that. But all of those laws are preparing them to be an adult with some freedom and be able to go some places and have more freedom. And so the law is what was really there. The law was, was given in the Old Testament to lead us to a place of spiritual liberty. It doesn't mean I can do whatever I want to do. It means I can be free to be what God wants me to be. God called me for a purpose. And so if you, if you had to, that, that, that's the first section. The second section is going to be fast. We're not going to be much longer. But that first section, how we deal with others, you can, you can break it down here. Your, you, how, what you believe ought to control your behavior. If you believe the deity of Jesus... If you believe that he's gracious and the grace, that amazing grace is there, if you believe the Bible is true, and if you believe that one day we'll be judged on what we say, think, and do, well then, I better love my neighbor as myself. So, would you turn with me to James chapter 2, verse 14? We get to this place called faith. The sinner, the Bible tells us the sinner is saved by faith. The Bible tells us in the Corinthians that the believer walks in faith. Another place says without faith it's impossible to please God. 
And in Romans says that everything we do apart from faith is sin. Faith is important to our walk with God. Someone wrote this. Someone said that faith is not believing in spite of evidence but obeying in spite of consequence. And we just came out of last year the whole study in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11. And there we saw men and women that followed the word of God, that whatever price they had to pay, it, it didn't matter to them. Faith is that confidence that God's word is true, and it's the conviction that if I act on that word, it will bring his blessings. And so here's one of these, these central components of the book of James faith and works and if you've been in the church for any length of time or had any discussion about God and church and Bible somewhere you've had someone argue one way or the other about faith and works well let's not do what other people say let's look and see what the word of God says if faith is necessary to save us James tells us there are three kinds of faith. And the, here's, you're going to see that alliteration. And I like how Warren Wearsby does this alliteration. And so you're going to see three things, three different types of faith, but only one of them is going to save you. So let's find them. James chapter 2, verse 14 through 17. What good is it, brothers, if someone says he has faith but doesn't have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you say to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. See, here, here you have, an, and it, it happens today, but in the, in the early church, in the church of Jerusalem, you had people that would say, I have a saving faith, but there was no proof of that. They would say, I'm saved. But if you tried to find any evidence of that salvation, it was severely lacking. In fact, you know uh, that, that Jesus himself said, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but only he that does the will of my Father which is in heaven. It didn't say those that believe. It says those that do. Because faith without works is dead. And so the first kind of faith that you find is dead faith. People that have dead faith are those who can talk a lot but have no actions whatsoever. They know the right words to say. They may even know the right prayers to pray. They might even come to, to church. They, they know how to quote the right Bible verse and they seem really spiritual. That's the drunk dude, not that I've been to a bar, but that's the drunk dude on the bar that's drunk, can't even stand up, but can quote the whole Bible. And I've been around people and, and seen them, and I know some of you, before God saved you, you may have had some bar experiences, and you know what I'm talking about. When I ride with the police, you'd be amazed how many people we put in the back of the police car that's very spiritual. Took off a whole baggie of marijuana and three rocks of ecstasy, and but man, they know how to pray. <coughs> but the problem is their walk doesn't measure up to their talk. Dead faith. And in fact, let, let, James just gives you a simple illustration. Somebody comes in and they're, they're poor and they, they don't have the right clothes and they're starving. And so someone with dead faith goes, oh, it looks like you don't have any clothes and it looks like you're starving. Oh, let me read to you what the Bible says and go in faith. And you leave and you're still starving and you still ain't clothed. Dead faith. Is that way. Dead faith is someone who sees the need but does nothing to meet the need. 
nothing we can do. And so it is that the Good Samaritan, let me take you back to that Good Samaritan. You had the priest that wouldn't even walk by him. The priest went to the whole other side of the street, walked by that poor dude who's bleeding and half dead. The Levite actually went up there in morbid curiosity and looked down and said, yeah, he looks about dead, kept off walking. If you were to meet the Levite and the priest later on, and you would have asked them, are you saved? Both of them would have vehemently said, I have saving faith. But none of them could demonstrate that faith. There's a lot of people that like to defend their faith. A lot of people that like to say they're this and that. But there's no defense thereof. I want to tell you today, you don't have to defend your faith if you demonstrate your faith. You don't have to tell anybody you're a Christian if you just act like one. Sometimes you have to tell people you're a Christian when you're not acting like it. And so the question is, can that kind of faith save him? And the answer is no. Faith that has no practical work cannot save you. So James chapter 2 verse 17 that we read later, even though faith that hath not works is dead, being alone. John Calvin, the theologian, he, he, it's where you get the Calvin, Calvinistic church and, and some of those things, and I don't agree with everything he wrote, but he wrote this, and I do agree with it. It is faith alone that justifies, but faith that justifies can never be alone. Meaning if you have true faith, it won't be by itself. True faith will always bring forth life. True faith will always bring forth good works. True faith always will grow. In fact, one person said that, that dead faith is faith that only uh, uh, connects to your mind. It's intellectual faith. I know. I can quote the Bible. I know what the creeds of the church are. I know what the motto is. But there's no submission there's no obedience, there's no following of that. You can say the right thing, but you can't do the right thing. Beware of dead faith. The next thing is, and, and I love James, uh, well, well, first off, I wrote this illustration down. Beware of, of intellectual faith, because no man can come to Christ by faith and remain the same. And this is what I wrote down, someone wrote, said, you can't come to Christ and be unchanged. Just the same as someone can't grab hold of a 220 volt live wire and remained unchanged. Just, I've been shocked, never by 220 volts. I've been shocked by 110 volts, and I'm going to tell you, it will do things to you. It'll make you dance, it'll make you jump, it'll make you talk a little higher. It does all of that. The Bible says, He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son doesn't have life. That's 1 John chapter 5, verse 12. Beware. Of dead faith, faith that works. But then John, uh, James says, but there's a second one. So let's look at, at James chapter uh, 2 verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith with my works. You believe in one God. Great. Even the demons believe and they shudder. Warren Wearsby calls this demonic faith. Remember, the first one was dead faith. This is demonic faith. Did you know that, that, that James, he, he just kind of, James just liked to throw that out there. And you know, it messed up that congregation. They're, what do you mean? What do you mean? Well, you know what? The, the demons have faith. The demons believe. They believe in the existence of God. There's no agnostic or atheist demons. They believe in God. They believe in the deity of Christ. 
Look any place that a demonic or a demon or anyone ever got in contact with Jesus walking on this earth that they did not recognize or bear witness to the fact that he was the son of God. They believe in hell. They believe in the existence of punishment. They believe that Jesus Christ is the judge. They submit to the word of God. Demons believe. Deuteronomy 6.4 said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. That was one of those daily affirmations that, that any good Jew would make. It, it, every day they would say that. They would tell it to their kids. But guess what? Just because you believe in one God, wonderful. That puts you as smart as a demon. Because watch this, if dead faith is, is only faith that touches the mind, demonic faith, if you will, and I'm just using demonic faith because we talk about the demons, but, but it's, they're touched because the Bible says they believe and tremble. So that hits you in the emotions. But just because you believe and just because you tremble a little bit in a service doesn't make you saved. You can know and feel but you're still lost. James said, you show me your faith without your works, and I'll show you my faith with my works. Because James was telling us, it's not enough just to know, and it's not enough just to feel. It brings us to that third one, dynamic faith. And dynamic faith is faith that, that touches your intellect, and it's faith that touches your emotions. You believe and you tremble. But watch what James says in verse 20. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham your father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? So that you see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. Verse 23. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He was called the friend of God. You see, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. For the body apart from the spirit is dead. So faith apart from works is dead. True faith is faith that has power. True faith is evident in a changed life. There's, there's, <coughs> James described it a few different ways. First off, he said, if you want true faith, it better be based on God's word. Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. And so it is that James uses Abraham and Rahab because both of them heard the word of God and did. Abraham didn't hear the word of God to leave his, his country and leave his family. And he says, I heard you, God, and stayed right where he was. But the, but, but the word of God caused him to obey, caused him to follow. Rahab did too. You're not saved because you have faith. You were saved because you have faith in Jesus Christ according to what you've read right here. Faith, true faith, it has to touch you from the top of your head to the bottom of your feet. Your intellect, your emotions, and your will. Your mind can understand the truth. Your emotions can, can uh, uh, your emotions, your heart can long for the truth. But it's your will that does the truth. 
So it's going to change you. There's several different kind of works in the New Testament you can read about. The Bible says the works of the law. That was sinners who tried to just do what Moses' law said and didn't ever do anything New Testament oriented. And you're not saved by the works of the law. We have the works of the flesh. That's the, the things that people do for the old nature that lives inside of them. They follow the devil and they're doing that. You have wicked works. You have dead works. But when there's faith in Jesus Christ, you can have good works Abraham was a godly man Rahab was a harlot now I know there's those that, that will say the word harlot in, in back in uh, Joshua that meant an innkeeper and that may be true in the Jewish language but when you get to the Greek here that doesn't mean innkeeper it means exactly what we said it meant she was a prostitute and a harlot so you have two people a good person and a bad person both of them had to be saved by listening to the word of God and doing the word of God. That word, it was counted unto him for righteousness. Again, that's a, a financial terms. It means that as a sinner, Abraham's spiritual bank account was empty. He was bankrupt. But because he trusted God, loved God, he heard from God, and God put righteousness in his bank account. You can't become righteous on your own things. What does the Bible say? Your righteousness is as filthy rags. Bible says that he was declared, Abraham was declared righteous by faith. He was justified by faith. But it happened when he demonstrated his faith. How, how, how was Abraham justified by works if he'd already been justified by faith? Well, it goes like this. Before God, he was justified because of his faith. But it was his works that justified him before man and I know that there was no humans up there on that altar on that mountain when he put his son on that altar but we read about it in the word of God and the word of God's inspired in fact I preached about it Sunday morning I preached about Abraham in that altar and so we get to see that Abraham trusted God why because we read that he followed God's word he didn't just say I love God he followed God's word same is true with Rahab she heard God's word and she followed God's word. The Bible says in Rahab, and, and if you go back to, to Joshua, it says that Israel was about to invade and, and, and take the city of Jericho, and they, they saw that. And, and the Bible uses this term that, that Rahab told them, says, we knew you were coming, and our hearts did melt because of that. Rahab could have stopped right there and said, I know your God is God. That's dead faith. It's intellect. She said our hearts did melt, so that means her faith at least it touched the emotions. I know your God is God, and I know that he's going to destroy Jericho, and I'm trembling a little bit. And she could have stopped right there, and she could have had that demonic faith, if you will. But she had true faith, dynamic faith. She knew the truth. Her heart was stirred by the truth, and she acted on the truth. And we see her in the Old Testament, and we see her in the lineage of Christ, and we see her in Hebrews chapter 11. I'm going to tell you right now, your faith, a mature Christian doesn't just say, I'm a Christian. They show they're a Christian. And so if that's the case that we just read and that we've talked about, then it's up to you and I to step back and to examine our heart and say, Lord, if I really have faith, if I really am a Christian, 
then Lord, I need to look at how I treat others. Because how I treat others determines how much I truly follow your word. And Lord, I got to look at my faith. I've got to. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 13 Examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. Prove your own selves. We know that Satan's a deceiver, we know that Satan likes the counterfeit. If you follow James chapter 2 and you put your life in there, you cannot be a counterfeit Christian if you put yourself to the test that James did. How do you treat others? And are you following what you hear and what you know? It was Psalms, the writer of Psalms chapter 139 that said it this way, and I invite you to stand. (coughs) He said, search me, O Lord, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. If you'll let me give you Brandon Buford's synopsis of that verse. Lord, check my mind and see if I know you. Check my heart and see what's, what my motives are. And look at my actions And God, all three of those ought to line up with you and lead me in the way of everlasting. As Sister Buford just plays for a moment, uh, this is one of those days, you're not going to solve this at this altar. You're going to have to solve it on a personal altar, personal time of commitment. But I think it would behoove you and I to just take a moment as she plays softly just to close your eyes and let you examine your life. We've gone through through, uh, James chapter 2. What are you going to do? What have you found? The word spoken to you. Father, we thank you.